Genesis 2. Remember, we're doing, um, I'm trying to make it five weeks, um, taking us Genesis 1 through 5. Really, the narrative that starts today in Genesis 2 actually runs through Genesis 11. We're cutting it off at 5. Think about that as sort of, it's like a two-act play. And 1 through 5 is the first act of that play. And then you get into Noah. Um, that kind of takes us up through chapter 11. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis 2. If not, it's going to come up on some version of a screen in this space. I think we finally fixed every week. Jane says to me, um, why don't we get to see all the scripture on the screen? I think I finally fixed it. We'll see if it'll all come up on the screen. If not, you got a phone. You know you have a phone. You know you're looking at it anyway in worship. So just pull up the Bible. Um, so starting in chapter 2, we're actually going to start in verse 4 um, because that's where this uh, this creation account starts. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. If you notice, the first account says it's the account. Um, I'm sorry. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth in the heavens. So now he's switching focus. So you have the account of the heavens and the earth, which is Genesis chapter one, which is the broad focus. And then you get into Genesis chapter two, and it's the earth and the heavens, which which brings our focus in to what's going on on earth. It says, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the water and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasant to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there was separated into four headways. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, as opposed to the gold of other land, right? I don't understand that. Um, aromatic resin and onyx were also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. All right. So there are about a million things that we could talk about every week in Genesis. There, there are so many things in Genesis. Part of the problem is... Um, or, or maybe maybe part of the solution is that there are so many things in Genesis that if we understand them correctly, correct a lot of false thinking in the church. And, and so there's a thousand different directions we could go, especially as a church like Highlands, that we, we spend a lot of time interacting with people that have had bad church experiences. And, and there's so much here that's corrective. I, 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 for the 
for these two sermons, I've taken easily 12 pages of notes that um, that I wind through of things that we could talk about, but we just don't have time. And so what I'm asking you to do is, is, is to really dig into these scriptures because there's so much we're not going to talk about. I mentioned to you guys two resources um, that I've used. Uh, one of them, uh, somebody bought this last week. So good on you. Thanks for listening. Um, the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. This is my favorite study Bible by far. It, it's not super cheap. Um, you can get it softback, hardback, whatever. But, but if you really want to dig into the scriptures, this NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, it's not that I love the NIV, it's the notes and the articles, um, particularly in this Bible, in terms of study Bibles, I think are in- incredibly useful, especially for understanding Old Testament books in Genesis. And then the other thing um, that I mentioned to you guys last week, and I brought it up here this week, um, just to show it to you, is this book by Sandy Richter called The Epic of Eden. Dr. Richter, um, Old Testament professor, served in a lot of areas. Um, this is really will take you through the entire Old Testament, really give you uh, a lens with which to understand the Old Testament in its context. So I'd highly recommend that. I encourage you guys to read through. I encourage you to ask questions. If you send us, my, if you send me your questions, I will do my best to try to answer them. I'm going to answer a big one this week that people have. Um, but if I'll ask you guys if you have them, if we have time and online, Emma is back there. If you're online and you want to submit your questions on Facebook or on YouTube, she'll see them. And um, I'll try to maybe answer one or two of those as well uh, before uh, I get finished today. But here are some interesting things we're not going to talk about today um, that I would encourage you to check out. One, the idea that we're made from dirt is a big deal um, for, uh, for the cultures uh, that this book would have first been read in. That God is a gardener making gardeners. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that, but not a ton. Uh, the second thing, and this is something that's really important to understand in terms of context, is this chapter is a mixture of geography and mystery. Right, You see all these things about rivers that were in this city and this thing, and it's in the east and all of that. And some of that, these people would have been able to point to and say, I know where that is. But then some of it doesn't make sense geographically. And so and so, it's important to understand that, that this is where the scriptures start to kind of enter. In, they morph into this interesting mix. And again, we'll talk a little bit about that, but not a ton. Um, the tree of life is a really interesting idea. Um, here are fun questions to ask that the Bible, well, fun for me, I guess, maybe they'll be fun for you, but they're interesting questions to ask that the Bible doesn't really talk about. Were Adam and Eve immortal on their own? It doesn't seem so. It seems that they had to eat from the tree of life to continue to live, which is interesting. And then you can ask yourself this question, did other things die, right? Did other things die? I would assume that plants at least died because they would eat them, right? And the animals would eat them. But anyway, Like I said, we're not going to talk about that. Those are just interesting things to sort of wrestle through. And then the last thing, again, we'll talk a little bit about this, um, but the idea of being naked and without shame. Uh, (laughs) There's too many jokes that are inappropriate. But uh, one thing I want to say is that this isn't a a sexual issue for Genesis 1 and 2. Um, it, It has more to do with the idea in the Old Testament that if you were naked, you had shame because you were impoverished. And, and to be impoverished was to carry shame with you. Um, when, the, when, the, when the Old Testament talks about being naked, that's what it's referring to. Um, so those are just some things that we're not going to get super into. But, but these are the kinds of things that you can wrestle through and learn from Genesis 2. Um, so Genesis 2 is a creation account. And it is different than Genesis 1. The order of events is different. 
you, you can see it pretty clearly. People have tried to kind of wind themselves and tangle themselves into theology to make these accounts work together, but, but I, they, they don't seem to have to. Um, we talked a little bit about this last week, um, but, but essentially what, what I would say and what a lot of theologians argue is that this is, this Genesis 2 is telling the same story, the same event as Genesis 1, but, but just in a different way because it has different questions to answer. And, and really the answer or the question that Genesis 2 is answering, in Genesis 1, it was what's the character of God? What is the character of God and how does God relate to humanity? And in Genesis 2, really what we're answering is the question is, what is the function and purpose of humanity? And a couple of things that are at play here that, again, are important to understand for context is there's something uh, that they talk about a lot of times in theological circles called anthropomorphism. Uh, and some of you might know what that means. Some of you might not know what that means, but essentially here's what it means. When we use human characteristics to understand God, God is metaphysical and, and pretty impossible to understand, even as a concept. And, and so what we have to use are human terms. We have to use physical terms to understand the metaphysical. And, and that's, what, that's what's happening in this passage. And that's a little bit of the sort of geography versus mystery of this passage. Uh, we've talked about before here parables and how Jesus used parables. And, and parables were, were stories about earthly things to illustrate eternal truths. And what we've talked about, we talked about this with the prodigal son. If you try to narrow in on a parable of Jesus too much, it's going to do two things. One is it's going to frustrate you, and two is it's going to make you develop bad theology. Because a parable isn't meant to address every single detail and issue. And, and I would say Genesis 2 is the same way, that there are some ways. It's, it's not that, that Genesis 2 isn't saying true things. It's that when you try to narrow in on it, right? Is God a gardener? Well, no, God's not a gardener. Uh, did the man used to have more ribs and now we have less ribs? Probably not is what I would say. But, but when you start to narrow in too much on it and make it something that it isn't, you're going to get frustrated and you're going to develop bad theology. So I want to share a couple of things contextually. The first thing is I've stolen all of this from Dr. Richter. So you just need to know that, right? If you read this and you're like, he's not as smart as he says, he just reads a lot. You're right. I'm not. Um, so one of the big things for understanding this is this is, is this idea in the ancient world of what was called a Mesopotamian animation ritual. So, so the context that Genesis 2 is written into is a context in the ancients, ancient people believed that they could animate idols through a ritual. And, and here's what that means. When, when you look at ancient Mesopotamian culture, which I'm sure you do all the time, it looks like they worship statues, right? But really, that's not what they were doing. What they believed is that they could incarnate their deities in these statues. And so they were worshiping their deities in the image of their deities. And so they would work really hard to make these beautiful, almost perfect works of art to represent the gods in space and time. And they had elaborate rituals that surrounded the incarnation. They would start with these highly expert craftspeople, craftsmen. And, and a lot of the terms that are used of God in Genesis 2 are these terms that are used for craftsmen. We talked about one of them last week, Yetzar, as a, as a way to create, meant to craft like a potter or like someone building a statue. And, and so these craftsmen would, would build, would Yetzar these statues. And when the statue was complete, you took it to a sacred garden. You following me here? 
and you placed it there. And then they would come, come home and they would come back the next day at dawn and they would do this ritual that was like the gods placed this statue here. The gods placed this deity here. They brought it into the gardens themselves. And then they would do this weird thing where they washed out the eyes and the mouth as a ritual to animate the statue with the presence of the deity. So that's what gave it the presence of the deity. And then once it was animated with the presence of the deity, with the presence of the deity, it was installed in the temple. And then catch this: the craftsmen would ritually cut off their hands. Who wanted to be a craftsman until this moment? This is when you didn't want to be one anymore. They would cut off their hands as a way to say for the rest of their lives, I never touched it. I never touched this statue. And all the tools that made the, that they made the statue with were destroyed. And, and what Dr. Richter says is the reason they did this because even the ancients knew that humans aren't supposed to be crafting gods. Even the ancients knew that that's not the way it's supposed to work. God is supposed to be crafting humans. So that's the backdrop for Genesis 2. And into that, in Genesis 2, what we see is we see an almighty God in a sacred garden. And then that almighty God crafts, same word, Yetzar, with his hands, an image. And God crafts this image of himself, and God animates the image, not by washing it out, but by filling it up and installs his image in the sacred garden as a representation. Remember, we said in Genesis 1, the garden's also a temple. And then he crafts a partner that has that same characteristics, has those same characteristics to share in the image bearing. And, and what Dr. Richter says is this, Genesis 2 is a highly sophisticated critique of Israel's neighbors. She says, it's not humans who make true gods in sacred gardens. It's the true God who makes humans in their sacred spaces. And our God has created his image, animated, installed, and appointed. So that's the backdrop with which we understand Genesis 2. One more thing I'm going to talk about because this is one of those myths we need to correct. What's going on with the two humans? What's going on with the two people? Man and woman, woman taken from man. There is a lot of false theology that exists out there about this one. So, so here's the thing. I'm going to try to be as succinct as I can about this. So we're in the garden, and there's one human being. And this human being is tasked with looking after all of the garden, all of the livestock, and, 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 and making it grow. And that is too much for one person. That is ultimately it. See, in our culture, especially on Valentine's Day, happy Valentine's Day, it would really be easy to be like, oh, he's lonely. And to spend a whole sermon talk about loneliness, but 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 that's just in our culture. Genesis doesn't say anything about human the human being being lonely, and the Bible honestly doesn't really talk a ton about loneliness. Loneliness, in in the way we think about it, is a problem of urbanized societies. In in traditional societies, the problem of being alone meant you weren't able to fulfill the tasks you were made for, and you needed more people. Right, and, and so that's what's going on: is this human being at a task, and he needs help. And until he has that, God says creation can't be good. It, it can't be what it's supposed to be with one person. Even if this guy, even if, it, even if Adam eats from the tree of life and lives forever, one human being on their own will never be able to look after and serve the garden. You need a labor force. It's what you need. Doesn't that sound super Valentine and romantic? 
you ever, if those of you who aren't married, you think about saying to somebody, will you help me build a labor force? That's how you propose, right? No, but that's what this guy needs. And he needs a suitable helper to produce one. Now, here's where things, again, get a little squirrely for us, is that there's this Bible, the King James Bible. It was kind of the first one we had in English. And when it translates in here, it talks about Eve as a help meet for Adam, which is a weird thing. We don't say that. It's not M-E-A-T, by the way. It's M-E-E-T, someone who meets Adam in a help. And, and it's been really uncommon to infer that this person is just secondary to Adam, that Eve is just there to help Adam kind of pull his stuff off. But, but that's not really logical for a variety of reasons. One is the phrase that's used for helper that, that King James says help meet is this Hebrew phrase, ezer konegdo. Just say that to yourself, ezer konegdo. You're going to like that phrase. You're going to use it a lot in arguments like I do going forward. And ezer, so it's two words, ezer konegdo. Ezer in the Old Testament is really used primarily to refer to women, nations who helped Israel with military aid, and God. That word, Ezer. When, when in, in its context, the Bible word for Ezer is used consistently as a warrior, a military complex. So, so God makes a warrior, Ezer, right? And Konegdo means that corresponds to the person in front of them. A warrior that helps. That meets need. And so Ezra Konegdo means a strong one who is capable of getting you out of a mess. That's what God makes. Adam's in a mess. Too much to do. And God says, Ezra Konegdo, here's somebody who's strong. Being a help does not imply being subordinate. If anything, it points to the idea of equality. And I know you guys are at this point like David has a bit of a beef and likes to pick fights about equality. I sure do. I sure do, because I think that the Bible does that. Neither has authority over the other in this context. Neither is inherently the leader or inherently led. All that stuff comes later. And again, it's easy for us to think about this as, as some sort of romantic picture. But, but that's not really what's happening here. There's a, there's a person who's alone, and there's a person who can come along and be a helper in a mutual relationship. What's funny is we don't know as the readers, I promise I'm going to get through this. We don't know. Here, I think this is super interesting. Just go along with me. I'll tell you when you can wake up again. But we don't know. Adam, the word used for Adam, just means human. We don't even know it's a guy until the woman is made. And then you get these phrases, ish and isha. Right? Adam is Ish, and Isha is who came out of Ish. And so what you see is, again, it's not, it's, it's not this romantic thing. If you want romance, go read Song of Solomon today, and you'll blush, I promise. But that's not what's going on here. Adam looks at this person, Ish looks at Isha, and basically says, this is somebody who is different and who is suitable for me to do what we're called and purposed to do. This is a help. And no, God did not literally make the first woman by recycling a part out of the first man. This is parabolic. I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna stake my claim on that. All right, if you wanna argue with me about it, you can do it later. What, what this Genesis 2 is saying is that God used a part of the first human being to make the second. 
And that's why their relationship is so close, right? As we would put it, they have the same genetic makeup, except for the elements that make for, for gender differentiation, which was important for bearing fruit, right? For, for being fruitful and multiplying. You needed that. And Adam doesn't name the woman like he names the animals. She has this context to her that is connected to him, but already exists without him. It's more like he discovers and prophesies, I've discovered that this person is different and yet suitable. And, and this idea of leaving and cleaving that, that's talked about a ton in, in weddings and et cetera, one of the things that's interesting is that even though we translate it wife in the NIV, is that they never use husband and wife. They never use the Hebrew words for husband and wife. They just use the Hebrew words for man and woman because the Hebrew words for husband and wife suggest a subordinate relationship. And it's avoided in Genesis 1 and 2. And this idea of bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh is used when David talks about the Judeans in the context of a civil war. It's essentially saying, these are my people that I will go in lockstep with to accomplish God's purposes. And it says, that's why we get together, to find someone to walk in lockstep with to accomplish God's purposes. So that's it. That's, I, that's my beef. That's my personal beef. Here we go. Now we can talk about life in general. You can wake back up if that's not something that interests you at all. So how do we apply this? Here's the big picture application for us for Genesis 2 today. There's so much here that I might come back and talk more about Genesis 2 next week. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. But the big picture application for us is we are not our own. We're not our own. You don't just belong to you. And the reason I think that's an important application for us is we live in as egocentric, as self-centered a society as has ever existed. You know who people, when they do surveys to say, who do you think, where's your most trustworthy source for information? Do you know what, like, the vast majority of people say in our society? Me. I am my most trustworthy source for information. Well, isn't that convenient? Aren't you always right? Right? We trust ourselves. We promote our brand. That's a super weird thing if, if you're younger than 20, FYI that you would have a personal brand, but we think we do, right? We define ourselves and our value by what our personal experience is. One of, the, one of the difficult things in our current culture, one of the difficult things about understanding something like COVID is that your personal experience affects how you understand it. And, and in the past, we've understood there's a tension between sort of global experience and personal experience, but we more than ever now believe that our personal experience, that, that our value and ourselves are defined by our personal struggles and our personal victories. You guys have probably heard a thousand times about how like the primary goal for, for, for younger people, again, people 25 and younger, is to be famous, that that's the number one thing they want to be that there was a survey done a few years ago and it said, if you could become a medical doctor, a lawyer, or an assistant to a famous person, what would you want to be? And 82% of people said, I would be an assistant to a famous person. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and especially, I would say, especially in the last year, 
with all the things that we have been forced to do to isolate, we've become even more inwardly turned in a lot of ways. Right? As a nation, as a culture, and most often as individuals. And Genesis 2 steps into that culture, into our lives, and says to me, I am not my starting point. I am not my starting point for truth, for purpose, or for value. I am not my starting point for life. I am not the one who defines those things. And that's offensive to us. To to hear what Genesis 2 says, which is you are a participant, and really what you do is you animate something that is more profound and more important than you. We are not our own. We are not our own. When I I hear Genesis 2 say, I am not my own, the first thing that tells me is this, I'm not enough on my own. I can't do what I'm made to do on my own. My strength, my perspective, my race, my gender, my political point of view, my theology, my church, my family, none of that is enough for me to accomplish what I was made to do. I'm going to confess something here. Is this okay? I'm going to confess. I, if you really pressed me on it, I'm pretty sure life is a movie starring me. I'm pretty sure that that's what we're engaged in. Life is a movie starring me. And the reason I know that is because when I leave here, the movie goes with me. You guys don't. So it's not a movie starring you. It's a movie starring me. And you're you're the supporting cast. I'm up for the Oscar for best actor. But, But here's the thing. You think it's a movie starring you. And and the truth is, it's not. It's not a movie starring me. It's not a movie starring you. It is, if, if it's a movie, it's a movie about God and God's creation. And living in anything less is not living in my purpose or my function. I don't make the God's and decide. God made me and decides. Practical conclusion to that for me is I need to expand my vision beyond me. And I need to acknowledge that I need help. I need to acknowledge that I'm going to need help if I'm really going to live my purpose. And not only do I need to acknowledge about it, I need to start becoming excited about asking for help. That made some of you go, oh. If you don't look and ask for help, some of you, you're sweating right now. You're not going to find your full purpose and function. Right? I I didn't want to plant islands. I don't know if you guys know that or not. I didn't want to. It took about five years to figure it out from start to finish of the first feeling like the Lord talking to me about it. I I didn't want to do it because I thought I can't do this. And then when I realized it wasn't about me doing it, somebody actually asked me, they said, okay, fine, but if you were going to do it, who would you want on your team? I thought, oh, that could be fun. I don't have to be everything or do everything, but I could work with other people that I love and believe in. 
and we could do something bigger than ourselves, it allowed me to say yes. And I think for some people, you're saying no to your purpose because it's too big for you. And you need to start asking for help in finding your purpose. Second thing, knowing that I'm not my own says to me is that my purpose and value aren't rooted in me. They aren't rooted in me. You guys know what God had the first humans do for a living? They were landscapers and livestock keepers. Some people say they were gardeners, but that's the easiest gardening job I've ever seen in my life because everything was super fruitful and all the water came up from the ground. I've tried to, we've tried to do gardens. It has been mildly successful, I would say, at best. They were landscapers and they were livestock keepers and they were people made out of dirt. These aren't highly sought after things right? The first humans, they got paid just enough to get by and live, right? That's what they got. Tree of life, enough to eat. They didn't even have clothes. But they felt no shame about what they didn't have because their purpose and their value wasn't rooted in those things. Their purpose and their value wasn't rooted in their job title or their income or their status. Their purpose and their value was was rooted in the fact that they saw their image maker. And they said, that's what we are. That's who we reflect. Their purpose and their value were rooted in God, their maker. God touched dirt, so Adam was valuable. God was a gardener, so Adam was valuable. Your purpose and value are not dependent on your weight, your age, your hair, or lack thereof at times, your bank account, your house, your health, or lack thereof, your value and purpose. They are not dependent on your winning or your losing or your job or your lost job. What Genesis 2 says when it says, I am not my own, it says that that my value and my purpose are not contingent on any external circumstances. I know that some of you thought you were going to have fill in the blank, a spouse, a family, a job, an income, right? All these things by now that you don't have. You thought you were going to have it and you don't. That's the value in knowing that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Their purpose and their value was rooted in the fact that they had breath. And they knew that their breath was from God. So here's the good news. You got breath, even bad breath? Because I didn't see any toothbrushes in the garden. You got breath? You got purpose and value. That's what the Bible says. If you got breath, you've got purpose, and you have value. I have to let my maker define my value. I have to let God's touch and life animate my life. And I have to quit waiting for something to give me purpose and value. And I need to start living with the purpose and value I've been given. That's the parable of the talents. If you don't know that, go go look in the New Testament and read the parable of the talents. You have this one guy who's waiting and waiting and waiting because he thinks what he has is not enough. And and, And what God says is, I gave that to you to live 
and it wasn't about what you were given. It was about who gave it to you. I'm going to go and tell you guys, being a church on mission sounds a lot prettier than it is. So many times, so many people that aren't you because you're here, look at me and say, do you really think this is going to work? And they're not being nice. They say, why not just focus on a mission? And the reason we don't focus just on a mission is that in Highlands, we believe God's mission has a church. And we think that if the church is going to live on mission, then that church needs regular, continual support and encouragement to stay on mission. And that's why we have Sundays, if you were wondering. That's why we have Sundays, is to encourage the church to stay on mission. This is the halftime speech, if you want to think about it like that. You just get halftime every week, and you get the halftime speech. And then the minute we stop this is the minute we walk back out into our purpose. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. You cannot escape it. You can just decide if you're going to embrace it or if you're going to bury it. People someday are going to decide to talk about what your life meant. Or they're going to decide not to. Someday they're going to decide to talk about what Highlands meant, or they're not to, or they're not going to. The question is, what are they going to say? Our story, your story, my story is not going to be the result of so many things that we think it is, but it's going to be the result of us deciding that there are no external limits on our calling to our mission. There is just time and the fact that we have breath. You're not your own. Don't define your value or your purpose. Last thing. I need God to make the choices that will lead to abundant life. I need God to make the choices that will lead to abundant life. In some ways, this just is, it makes sense in terms of design. If we're made as images, then the true will know what the image needs to thrive, right? Does that make sense? If it doesn't, Grab me afterwards, we'll talk about it. But the number one question I get from this chapter, I want you guys to try to think what, what, what you think it might be. The number one question that people ask about this chapter, why did God put a tree in the garden that they weren't supposed to eat from? Why did God stick a tree in the garden that they weren't supposed to eat from? And that answer is a winding road that ultimately involves the fact that mature relationships of mutual love and dignity always have to involve a choice. But, the question itself is an indicator of a few problematic things. The first is this, how much we want to pass the blame. We're going to talk about that next week, but I just want to present this. So if I went to Nathan's house and Nathan said to me, hey, there's a lot of liquids in this house. There's sweet tea, there's Coca-Cola, there's water, there's juice, and there's antifreeze. You can drink all the stuff. Don't drink the antifreeze. It's labeled. And if I drank the antifreeze, is the first real practical, fair question, well, why did Nathan have antifreeze? Is it? No. That's not the question. But, but, but that's where we go because we want to pass the blame. Right? Well, why did God do it? But the other thing that the question indicates is it shows these two sort of weird problems that we have. One is that we know that we need a God to protect us from our worst selves. Right? We need a God to protect us from our worst selves. That's why we ask the question, well, why did God put something there that we weren't supposed to eat? Because I, I love to go after the things I'm not supposed to go after. But on the same side, we also think we could do a better job ourselves. 
And there's hypocrisy in those two things. There's hypocrisy in that question. I know that I need a God to protect me from my worst self, but I think I could be a better God than that God. Right? That, that's the problem. I am not a good choice maker about the things that will lead to abundant life, but I seem to think that I'm a better one than God. Two trees. Two trees God talks about. A bunch of trees in the garden, two trees he talks about. First one is the tree of life. What this says is life apart from God is impossible to sustain. Whole rest of the Bible is about that. Second tree is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Essentially what that tree tells us is that knowledge of good and evil apart from God is impossible to discern. Right? Think about all the big questions we have about God and life and things. They're all around good and evil. And, and we don't have great answers. And the truth is, because when it comes to the big issues of good and evil, there's more going on than we can fathom. That's why our biggest questions are around evil in the world and a good God. It is so confusing to us when left to our own. In the beginning, people understood it as this. What does God want? What does God not want? Go ask God. What do you want? What do you not want? That's easier. Right? When it became divorced from God and left to us, things started going sideways almost immediately. You tell me. You tell me. Who's good? Who's evil? Tell me. You can do a really good job of telling me who's evil. You're not going to do a great job of telling me who's good, are you? Super hard to figure out. What's the best decision for my life, my future? You might think you know the answers if you haven't done anything yet. Those of us who have tried to make those decisions and predictions for our lives, we've seen how often we can be wrong. Somebody's naked in front of me. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Depends, doesn't it? <laughs> right? It's, there, there's so much about good and bad and evil that, that I'm just stuck. Anyone with experience would admit this. There are questions that are just beyond me. But I seem unwilling to recognize in the things and people I care about the most, that there might be a better answer than the one I want. What's the opinion that you can't seem to give over to God right now? What's the opinion that you hold? That you're like, God, you can have everything else, but you can't have that one. I already know how I feel about that. I already know how I think that should go. And this is where the truth of Genesis 2, I'm not my own, really pinches me. With what I really want to guard is my own. I'm fine that I'm not my own when it comes to things like my bank account because I don't really want to guard it that much, to be honest with you. That might be a tough one for you. But it's the things that I want to guard as my own that I want to say, yeah, God, I'm not my own over here. I'm not my own with my purpose and my value or the fact that I need help, but I need to be my own over here. But piecemealing God's ownership of our lives never works. It's like the current bathroom situation in my house, right? We're down to one bathroom and everybody shares it. It can work for a little while, but it is not sustainable for healthy long-term relationships. See, that's, that's ultimately why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is there in the garden. The, the question isn't, should people get to eat of this tree or not? And the question isn't, should people get knowledge of good and evil or not? The question is, will we let God be God or not? 
Will we embrace the purpose we were made for, which is to bear an image and therefore bear fruit? Those are the real questions that Genesis 2 is asking us. So close with just these questions that you can, you can discuss this week, wherever you are. First is this, where are you struggling to see that you're not your own? Is it hard? Is it too hard for you to ask for help? And I'm going to tell you, you're going to cut your legs off for your purpose. You may get further than most people. You're not going to get as far as God wants you to go without somebody who is a warrior for you. Do you find your value? Do you place your value and purpose in all these external things? And you're so scared of losing them. Are you letting God define good in your life? Second question is this, what are you most tempted to guard from God right now? What's the thing that you don't want to talk to God about? You wouldn't want to talk to me about. And the last thing is this, what are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Because it's all well and good to talk up here about Genesis and all the interesting things and Ezra Connecto and all that stuff. But if we don't walk out of here, and do something about it. If we don't ask for help, if we don't tell somebody this is what I'm struggling with, it doesn't matter. So that's it. That's Genesis 2. Like I said, there's a bunch of other stuff in there and I can't decide whether I want to go back after it or not. So, we any questions online, Ems? Anybody send anything? Ah, boo. So, what weird Genesis questions do you guys have? Do you have any? Nobody, nobody wants to ask. Someday we're going to have a church where I talk for 10 minutes, which you guys are like, amen. But where we just ask questions and answer them for like 10 or 15 minutes. I tried to do that once with Highlands and it was such a bust that I didn't do it again. Someday we're going to have that where you guys feel super comfortable just asking your crazy, weird questions because they are crazy and they are weird. Anything, anything, Genesis 2, any questions? Anything back from Genesis 1? you guys wanted to ask that I haven't addressed so far? Anybody online? You got one, Maggie? No? All right. All right. I'm going to pray, then it will be done. Um, again, I'd encourage you guys, this is probably the best option that you have to be at a parade in this weather. So uh, come to Sterling Estates if you can. Let's pray. God. God, I'm, I'm, I'm ultimately super thankful that I'm not the centerpiece of what's going on in creation. That I'm not on my own. That my purposes are actually bigger than what I could do. And that I'm not left on my own to try to figure out what is good and what is evil in a world that is super confusing. God, I, I hear... And, and I see you in Genesis 2 saying, this is what I want for you. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I, I want you to, to spread the greatest things across wherever you are. And I think about the words of Jesus who said, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. You got to pray for us this week 
that we would abide. That we would take time, that we would let you define us first, that we would let you set our vision, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds and filled with the spirit to do the will of God, the breath of life, real life, abundant life. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.